We talk a lot on the show about how the structural forces that determine historical outcomes, especially historical outcomes in a bourgeois dictatorship like the United States, but those structural forces are always contending with the chance and contingency that determines the outcome of individual events. Some periods are so thin with meaningful contingency that looking backward, it is difficult to see any other outcome emerging. But there are also periods so thick with possibility and the effervescence of random outcomes that the seemingly overpowering economic and social structures dissolve and possibilities open up that otherwise seem fantastical. Ending the Myth, the show where we use Greg Grandin's 2019 book, The End of the Myth, to awaken and tune our pineal glands so that we can see the dark and ancient forces that drive and motivate the worst country on the planet. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And that quote, some of you, maybe ring a tinge of familiarity is hitting your ear right now, uh, is from our very special guest today. Uh, he hosts uh, the Hell of Presidents podcast on Stitcher, uh, as well as one of the original hosts of Chapo Trap House. Matt Christman, thanks for coming on with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, and um, Matt, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your series, The Hell of Presidents? Oh, actually, sorry, let me, is it, it's not the, right? It's just Hell of Presidents? Yeah, it's Hell of Presidents. Okay, okay. And, uh, I'll, 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 what the, I'm <laughs> leaving right now. How dare you? Uh, <laughs> no, the, the idea is to take the uh, the surface level uh, sort of survey U.S. history that you get in in school uh, as an American and and contextualizing it with uh, with a material base instead of just a, describing American history as a series of events just sort of happening one after the other. Uh, we're trying to provide a context explaining the underlying structures, uh, political and economic, that sort of dictated those outcomes. So that's the main project. Yeah, it's a great show, a very fun listen. Um, I have been wrapping my brain around the beard theory of presidents that then transitioned to mustache <laughs> theory, and now no mustaches, not since, uh, what, 1912. Uh, so Yeah, Taft, yeah. last mustachioed president. What can we do to get facial hair back into office, Matt? Bring it uh, back. I mean, I, I, I've got to assume at some point, like, some SEAL team douchebag is going to become president. <laughs> oh, so God. that will probably be the return. Oh, if there's going to be a return of facial hair to a president, that'll be it. Some, like, guy who has a reactionary coffee company and claims to have helped chop up Bin Laden's body or something. Oh, I'd not even considered that uh, possibility. Thanks for putting that in my brain. <laughs> sure. Well, always, at, least, at least in 
Don Jr.'s imagination. I remember he tweeted like a photoshopped image of uh of his dad, uh, bald and with a beard. And I've was, seen was that. Like, yeah. What, what if? Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> that's a hell of a what if because I am fully convinced that uh, Donald Trump, for some glandular or hormonal reason, is incapable of growing a beard of any kind. <laughs> it, it was a deep philosophical what if in that case. I mean, it, it, what if a true impossibility could happen? But yeah. <laughs> I like the idea that maybe Don Jr. just sees his dad like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he just he just imagines him as this rippling uh, uh, tier one operator. Yeah. And yeah not he's got just a big a, garrison. Like not you, a human yeah. jello mold in a Joseph A. Banks suit. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so we talk a lot on the show about contingency of history about the roads not taken and matt we thought you would be the perfect guest to discuss one of the most critical moments in u.s history a moment where everything seemed possible and for the first time in american history it looked like the country was destined to move in a more humane less sociopathic direction and into this moment we walked a man andrew johnson can you give us a little background on who andrew johnson was so andrew johnson was uh, most consequentially, the only uh, senator from a, a seceding state to maintain his loyalty to the Union instead of marching out of uh, Washington and going back to serve with the Confederacy. Uh, he's from, he was from Tennessee. He, was, uh, he considered himself a tribune of the poor white farmers who really were uh, a, a disenfranchised group uh, within – uh, antebellum Southern society, obviously not as disenfranchised as slaves. And in fact, a lot of the, the racial panic that animated poorer uh, whites in the South was about their precarious position uh, and how, how close they really were in their own minds anyway, to, to being in a position of, of, of uh, uh, slavery, considering how little control they had uh, over their affairs. Uh, the Southern states were wildly, uh, their governments were wildly gerrymandered to, uh, increase the influence and power of the planters. Uh, and so there were a few politicians who emerged uh, around the uh, idea of defending small white uh, interests. And Andrew Johnson, who uh, was an uh, a itinerant tailor before he uh, went into government, became one of those tribunes in Tennessee. Uh, and when the Confederacy emerged, he uh, stayed loyal to the Union. Uh, he condemned the uh, rebellion as as the work of these uh, elites, these these wealthy planter mm -hmm. elites. Uh, and he ended up becoming the military governor of Tennessee after it had been occupied uh, by uh, the United States military. Uh, and then he was faithfully put on the National uh, Union ticket with uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1864. Yeah, and I, I mean, I kind of want to talk about that because that's like our first sort of interesting moment because it's not like Johnson's his VP during the war or anything. Uh, he has the very coolly named Hannibal Hamlet. Yes, <laughs> we really we missed out on not having a President Hannibal. <laughs> exactly. We and got I mean, a President Ulysses later, but we really would have been cool to have a President uh, Hannibal. Yeah, I mean just missed opportunities all the way down and Hamlin he's a an he was a staunch like abolitionist when it mattered and things yeah. like that right you know so i mean he could have been the vp at the time of lincoln's death but vp or but lincoln sort of uh 
you know, kicks him off the ticket, you know, as uh, Adam Curtis might say, a little something happened <laughs> in the yeah. 64 election. Something fascinating happened. <laughs> <laughs> they forgot about power but yeah like <laughs> why, I mean, first off like why kick hamlin off the ticket why form this national unity party because i mean you just won the war you have national unity you've well, crushed see, your enemies and driven is them that, before you <laughs> is that when this happened that was that had not yet occurred yeah. uh that's the crucial element is that when in in 1864 the uh you know the high tide of the confederacy had already occurred at gettysburg and Pittsburgh, the union was marching uh agonizingly through the South, both with Sherman uh, and, and Grant uh, uh, in Virginia, but it was the, the, the fight was still occurring. Uh, and the democratic candidate in uh, 1864 was a former general uh, George McClellan, who had uh, failed miserably in his efforts, quote unquote, efforts to defeat the Confederacy on the battlefield and uh, had basically concluded, well, you know what? Uh, you, you just can't beat these guys. Let, let's get peace. Uh, and if it has to be on the terms of the South, then so be it. Uh, and so the Republicans who in 1860 were uh, running as, you know, a, a traditional political party in a, in a partisan contest uh, and whose ticket reflected that. So Lincoln was uh, from the West uh, and he emerged sort of as a moderate compromise from uh, uh, the more uh, – uh, the, the, the people who were more associated with the abolitionist fringe of the party, like William Seward. Uh, and Hamlin from Maine was put on the ticket to as, as a uh, sop to that eastern wing of the Republican Party. But the, Repub- but the uh, Republican uh, – ticket in 1864 uh, is no longer a partisan affair. It is it is a ticket based around the project of winning the war. Uh, and it, over four years of fighting the war, uh, the Republican Party had uh, and its various factions had been fully subsumed into the project. Uh, the people who had not been subsumed into the project were the Democrats. Uh, and there was a uh, desire on the Republican uh, part to pitch their reelection as this national project. They dropped the name Republican and campaigned as the National Union uh, Party, uh, and they sought for their tick the the <clears throat> and they sought for Lincoln's running mate, not a another Republican from New, uh, from a heavily Republican state, but someone who could be a olive branch to the uh, people who were not part of the original Republican coalition. And so they went looking for uh, some Democrat to fulfill the role. They uh, landed on Johnson, who, as I said, was the uh, only Southerner to stay loyal to the Union uh, and represented to them uh, a outreach to the border states who were never fully committed to the project uh, of the Civil War and whose loyalty Lincoln spent most of the war uh, very anxiously fretting over. Uh, mm-hmm. But he was not the first to be offered, the not, not the first Democrat to be offered uh, the spot. And this is where that, you know, that maddening contingency of history uh, kind of uh, winks at you. The first 
one of the first people offered uh, the spot was a, a Democrat from Massachusetts uh, who had before the war been a, the, a doe faces doe face in that he had fully supported uh, the Southern prerogative on slavery, had no interest in uh, resisting what the South's agenda was. He actually uh, campaigned in Massachusetts on the ticket of the Southern Democratic candidate in 1860, <laughs> uh, Breckinridge, not even on the Douglas ticket, mm-hmm. uh, but had then fought uh, through the, in the war uh, as a political general uh, who's wanted to show that Democrats could also be loyal to the Union uh, and who uh, had, had been the uh, go- military governor of New Orleans, uh, had uh, risen the first uh, uh, organized uh, black troops uh, in the Union Army, and by 1864 had, had moved significantly uh, in his political sympathies towards the more radical Republican agenda. And his name was Benjamin Butler, uh, and he turned it down. Uh, and mm-hmm. in his memoirs, he even says that he told uh, Simon Cameron, who uh, who had offered the spot to him uh, on the Lincoln platform or on the Lincoln um, ticket, that he would only do it if Lincoln promised to resign four months into his presidency because he didn't want to spend uh, four years doing nothing. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, at that point, the vice presidency was was considered a, a powerless position. Uh, that had very little um, ability to. Uh, uh, it, it was not a stepping stone to greater power, and you could ask Hannibal Hamlin about that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and so Butler turns it down, and then in that context, they go to Johnson, who accepts, and the rest is history. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, one, it, it, you you mentioned that story about the memoirs and and hell of presidents. It's so funny because. Maybe presumably these memoirs are written later. Uh, maybe if the like most famous assassination in American history happens, you leave out the part where you're like, yeah, it's like, hey, if he's if he promises to be dead in four months, <laughs> 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 like maybe you leave that part out of the memoirs, whether it happened or not. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I do appreciate it. And it, isn't his doesn't he get the nickname the Beast at some point? Too? Yes, for his <laughs> his ungentlemanly conduct as uh, military governor of New or- New Orleans. In fact. The local uh, uh, Confederate elite there uh, not only named him the Beast, also they called him Spoons because of uh, <laughs> accusations that he stole silverware from prominent Southern families. Uh, but they rocks. also they put his face on the bottom of chamber pots mm-hmm. so that Hell they yeah. could literally shit on him. So that's how unpopular he was. And it was that experience. Uh, because he marched into New Orleans having been, you know, a, a Democrat his whole life. Uh, but it was the experience of being military governor of New Orleans, really more than anything, that pushed him towards the Republicans, because the Democrats in the North uh, were horrified by his conduct there, uh, which he saw as just the necessary uh, military discipline required to occupy a hostile city. Uh, and when he was eventually with uh, with uh, withdrawn from the position because of the scandals around his tenure there. Uh, and he came back North. Uh, he was a pariah in the democratic press, but he was accepted with a uh, mm-hmm. huge uh, pomp and circumstance by Republicans. And, and they, they praised him and that would went a big part towards uh, making him more sympathetic to the Republican cause. Yeah. 
and so i mean we basically went from having a potential president hannibal to a potential potential president the beast you know those are two different universes that went off in different directions yeah and uh we're, le- we're left with just andrew at that mm-hmm. point <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's and so there's this other like weird thing that happens right which is that because we have a very stupid constitution and a very stupid federal government uh lincoln dies in april and johnson when he takes over he there's just nobody there he's yeah. like well i, I can just do what i want right like yeah. I, the, 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 the the congress had been elected but it would not uh convene until uh i believe november of that year Mm -hmm. yeah and so basically he is given full reign over these you know defeated south right like what they're going to do about the defeated confederacy so you know what was sort of what do you think maybe i mean obviously we don't know but what do you think lincoln's sort of vision was of what to do with the south versus maybe johnson's well it's very hard to tell with lincoln because he was throughout the entire war uh operating from a, a position of extreme pragmatism. Uh, he he was very focused on doing whatever was be necessary to keep the union together. But uh, by the very end of his presidency, that mission had changed to okay, we have kept the union together. What is that union going to look like? Uh, and there are plenty of statements towards the very end of his life that indicate that he recognized uh, the necessity if America was going to be. Uh, to come out of this having made all of the bloodshed worthwhile, uh, it was going to have to have a uh, some sort of reckoning with uh, its the racial caste system in the South. Uh, he famously said in the uh, second inaugural, you know, malice towards none, charity to all, which of course sounds nice, but in the, co- in the real practical uh, context of reconstructing the South would have been impossible. Somebody was going to have to get some malice put on them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that... You can scry from his not only his words towards the end of his life, but also just the trajectory of his policies that that his uh, uh, his instinct would have been towards having that malice fall on the heads of the people who'd actually started the war, uh, which he in that had very strong support among the northern population who were very happy to be vengeful uh, towards the people who they saw as responsible for the war, the planter class. Uh, and so the possibility of Lincoln or Butler uh, waging some sort of uh, punitive campaign on the planter class and specifically their power, uh, I think is a real possibility. What we got instead was Andrew Johnson, who, although he had spent his life hating the planter class and resenting them, uh, that hatred and resentment was purely from a personal position of uh of vanity uh and insecurity and it's kind of amazing how as soon as johnson becomes president uh and demands that any uh rebel above a certain position needed to uh, apply personally for uh clemency that uh as soon as this army of of swells from the south start making their way to the white house to kiss his ass uh, he decides that they uh, all learn their lesson and they should all get all their land back <laughs> because all he ever really wanted, all he, he, he didn't, he had no political project. Uh, he had no uh, p- political vision to, to check these people. He only wanted ever their approval. And as soon as they were supplicants to him, 
uh, that was all that was required. And maintaining the racial caste system that uh, he felt it uh, was necessary to, you know, maintain his own understanding of his own worth and the worth of, you know, the the poor whites that he claimed to be speaking for. That meant that the malice was that had to be expressed was going to be expressed on uh, the slaves because for Johnson uh, and uh, and a few and number of others after uh, after the war, uh, there was this mental gymnastics that blamed the slaves for slavery. Uh, mm-hmm. And allowed them to carry out that vengeance uh, on the, onto their heads instead of the, the people who had literally done the actual war. Yeah, and just to be clear, I'm curious: um, the idea of like punitive action against the Confederacy, the South, and like the especially the generals um, of the Confederacy that was pretty popular, and like even like maybe even putting up them up against the wall, like <laughs> completely removing them from the union. Like, I mean, like that, that wasn't like a fringe idea at the time, right? Like that was something that was seriously considered at least among radical Republicans. Is that, is that true? I mean, at the very edge of the radical Republicans among people like Thaddeus Stevens, there was a vision, a, a, a concerted vision to fully expropriate the planters to take all of their land. And to redistribute it among both white and black uh, people, in, uh, poor people in the South, former slaves and and, uh, and poor whites, uh, that was not by any means a universal uh, vision, but it was it was something that people uh, in power were considering, uh, and you see uh, in that protean moment there in 1865 uh, the seeds of that em- emerging because uh, when. Sherman is marching to the sea. Uh, he is solving the problem of, of of thousands of slaves marching behind his army uh, and slowing him down by having them uh, t- requisition uh, confiscated planter land. Uh, it was an it was a purely it was not an idealistic move. It wasn't a a, a politically visionary move. It was a, a pragmatic uh, exigency to to remove the the burden of all the mouths that he had to feed. Uh, mm-hmm. But it had the the real concrete um, result of creating a model for uh, for redistribution that could have been pursued. Instead, what happened is that Johnson, when he becomes president, begins removing generals uh, uh, from command who were sympathetic to slaves and sympathetic to redistribution, replacing them with uh, with largely Democrats who were still uh, thick in the officer corps, who then carried out a policy of of dispossessing these very people who had been given land by the, the the federal government in the first place, and that we that is not something that was being demanded by the people in the north. It's not something mm-hmm. that was being demanded by uh, even the 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 gold traders of of London, who sort of have a outsized role in determining the course of Reconstruction. It was the d- the demand of this this petty shithead in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's worth stating, right? I mean, the Civil War, I mean, I guess we have to express this given what's happened in the last year and a half, but the Civil War is an apocalyptic event. I mean, you know, granted, we've had like a Civil War amount of dead people in the last year and a half and nobody seems to care. Yeah. But back then, 600,000 people I mean, as a percentage of population, it's just a lot more. <laughs> and of course, the destructiveness of it. I mean, it's, the South mm-hmm. was, was annihilated uh, materially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for people in the north, I mean, 
the the feelings are not positive towards the people of the south at this point because you know if your brother's arm was blown off or dead or whatever right you know you're not you're not having good feelings uh, yeah and and that resentment ends up shaping the partisan uh context of of politics for the next two generations i mean the, mm-hmm. the 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 north votes republican the south votes democrat uh for the ne- for the next you know the rest of the of the century because you don't vote for the party who killed your dad yeah yeah <laughs> and, i mean just making it even more incredible that johnson's doing what he's doing yeah so i mean how does like congress respond to this when they uh finally i what it should be stated that Johnson's doing this, you know, obviously the radical Republicans in Congress are probably not thrilled at what he's doing, but are still just like, well, got to bide our time and show up, show up when the dinner bell rings or something. But what does Congress do when they finally show up? Uh, so uh, Johnson spends that that summer when he is he is able to carry out what's known as presidential reconstruction, trying to build uh, public support for this very lenient policy of, of recapitalizing the planters. Uh, bringing, allowing them to essentially re-enslave uh, the former slaves through uh, the mechanisms of the state rather than through the private prerogatives of of, the, of slavery, uh, and he gets some support. Uh, uh, the finance in New York likes it. Uh, a, lot, a number of Democrats are very happy with it. Uh, the, the 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 more conservative Republicans uh, are amenable. But the center of gravity of the par- Republican Party, which dominates Congress and Republican voters, is aghast at it. And mm-hmm. the uh, Republicans who come to Congress are overwhelmingly opposed to this. Uh, they're voted in with a uh, remit to stop this slide back towards the conditions before the war. Uh, and, and this was not because of you know, the advanced racial feelings of Northerners. Uh, they were, of course, you know, deeply racist. Uh, I think more than anything, it was a de- desire for the fucking sacrifice to have meant something mm-hmm. uh, for for mm-hmm. it to have the, the, all those deaths to, as Lincoln said, at Gettysburg to not have been in vain and a recognition that going back to uh, slavery under a different name and with slave owners back in the saddle uh, was not that uh, it would have been a waste. And so they insisted upon uh, a, 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 a radical reconstruction that they carried out over the vetoes and and screams of uh, President Johnson. Yeah. And, you know, given the fact that, like, the the South is sort of depoliticized at this point, this is that they're not, like, actively participating in the Congress and things like that, you know, they're not, they're not as defeated, they're not, you know, participants in the political system. I mean, what is Johnson doing? Like what? Like what is the point of any of this? Is he just a venal idiot? Like what? Is, what is? What is he, he trying to accomplish? He is trying to do uh, the same thing that John Tyler tried to do after he became president following William Henry Harrison's death, which is to uh, triangulate his way to a term, uh, a presidency of his own uh, that would have been won on his own terms uh, on a platform of defending uh, white supremacy, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. thinking, imagining that, that, that what would have, ta- what would have been required to really carry out a radical reconstruction of the South would have been too threatening to the racial notions of uh, Americans North and South. Uh, and that therefore he could run against that amalgamationist vision, uh, and get his own term for presidency. Uh, Tyler did it, uh, as, 
with an idea of being the slave owners candidate. Uh, and Johnson was going to do it as sort of the, the former slave owners uh, tribune. Uh, and, 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 and as such, the tribune of sort of white America, uh, because, you know, for white Americans to maintain their, their, their elevated status necessitated the uh, political disenfranchisement uh, of and, and the uh, sort of the labor caste uh, uh, of of blacks, uh, mm-hmm. and he made efforts to uh, pr- gather together disaffected Republicans and Democrats at a national convention that would have put the ball started the ball rolling on forming a third party with him as leader that would have then run for president uh, in 1868, but that never. Uh, that never really got going because uh, the demands of, of the Southerners who would have been part of that coalition uh, of just reinstituting the status quo ante uh, was too much for all but the most sort of hardcore racially aware uh, Republicans uh, who, again, are, are the, is the mean voter in the North by this point. Uh, and as such, he was never able to get it off the ground. And then he did make he did by the end of his term have sort of vague notions that the Democrats would nominate him as a thanks for all he'd done to uh, <laughs> fend off the Republicans for all those years. And they said, "Yeah, thanks for nothing. Fuck off." Which is exactly what happened to John Tyler. Incredible! It's, it's pretty amazing that this guy just tried to run the exact same playbook with the exact same result. Yeah. I- <laughs> amazing (laughs) yeah that's that that is just wow and i guess in the end of the myth by greg grandin he singles out johnson's opposition to the freedmen's bureau as particularly instructive so i'm just going to read a quote here johnson presided over a period of unmitigated venality with land speculators and railroad magnates supping at the public trough Yet he decried the Bureau's modest efforts as the essence of corruption and patronage. As portrayed by Johnson and others, the Bureau, along with other civil legislation, was unnatural in its interventionism. In its effort to use political power to impinge on economic activity, to extend political equality into the social realm. So, Matt, what was at the root of Johnson's hatred of programs like the Freedmen's Bureau? Uh, I mean, for Johnson specifically, as sort of a, a, a insecure freak, it was uh, the risk that they posed to the racial order that he felt was necessary. He had to be upheld because uh, because the Freedmen's Bureau uh, had the possibility, had the potential to to do to bring up to uplift. It was this very big word in 19th century America to uplift former slaves to equal position uh, of citizenship. Because uh, it, the, the the intervention of the Freedmen's Bureau allowed for former slaves to uh, gain access to political subjectivity in the form of organizing uh, politically uh, and also to be able to assert their labor rights uh, and to make uh, to register complaints against uh, employers and things and to be able to negotiate the terms of their labor, which obviously they'd never been able to do before, which would have made them equal citizens. And that was abhorrent to him. There was a broader horror uh, at the Freedmen's Bureau uh, that was maybe less uh, psychologically uh, determined uh, in the uh, American upper class, Republican, uh, as well as Democrat, that that was based on 
uh, a hostility to any government intervention in what was in what was seen as the natural natural order. Uh, Republicans, uh, wealthy Republicans, conservative Republicans might have been horrified by slavery, but be- it was because they thought that it was an unnatural condition. The the wage relationship and the market uh, labor they thought was a natural relationship. Of course, it was just as coerced by the state as slavery had been, mm. but you know that's how ideology works. And they saw the Freedmen's Bureau as a unnatural intervention in that, uh, uh, having the government put their finger on the scale uh, on behalf of of workers rather than ratifying the prerogatives of property, which is what mm. they thought the government existed to do. Which was very coincidental, mm. since they had a lunch about a, a lot of property, and for some weird reason, that's what they thought the government was there to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is where, you know, the sort of ability to expand West, right, is really important because you can you can put the idea of freedom off onto the idea of property when there is some to the West to, in theory, give away. Although, yeah. you know, not, not, not a lot of people are going to get it, but, you know, and the railroads will get all the best pieces. But, you know, uh, for Johnson, yeah, this idea, the idea of like social legislation right the idea of social rights as opposed to just pure property rights is is outside the what's considered acceptable at the time for a guy like johnson yeah no it's a violation of a natural order and yeah. and it, and the rare people the rare visionary politicians at the time were those who who recognized that what they had been fighting for uh in the war necessitated a actual reorganization of the relationship between citizenry and government and that that those liberal nostrums uh were superseded by events and uh we don't know that lincoln would have come to that conclusion if he hadn't died but everything about his his presidency and life indicates that he is one of the few americans who you can imagine being able to uh let experience and reality overrun their programming uh but even absent him, there were a, a few politicians who were uh, still holding on to that reality. Uh, one of them, obviously, as I said, Thaddeus Stevens, uh, Benjamin Butler, uh, also uh, Senator Ben Wade of Ohio, who uh, mm-hmm. would have been president if Johnson had been successfully removed from office after the impeachment. Uh, and one of the things all those people had in common uh, is that not only were they willing to have the government intervene uh, in labor intervene to redistribute land uh, and wealth, but they were also willing uh, to do all of that with a uh, fiat currency, uh, Mm. which Mm. ended up being one of the most crucial uh, sort of behind the scenes uh, political conflicts that shaped Reconstruction. Uh, And that was the reimposition of the gold standard after the war, or actually the first real imposition of a national gold standard that we'd ever had. Uh, and those forces pushing for a gold standard uh, were doing so expressly to harness the government and its ability to redefine uh, its relationship with the citizens. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was there were a few, including a guy who almost became president, who were saying, yeah, no, uh, fuck that, because the war had been financed <laughs> with fiat currency. The first national mm-hmm. currency in America was the greenback issued during the war. Uh, to pay for the war, which had no no backing in gold uh, and which uh, was used by many people, many wealthy people specifically, to buy bonds to fund the war itself. And after the war, one of the key uh, economic questions was how will those 
bonds be repaid? Will, will we pay them in the with the same greenback currency that they had been purchased with, or will we, will we pay them back uh, in goldback currency? Which and uh, the winners of that conflict were those who sought to have gold as the backing, which of course was a great deal for anybody who had the bonds. They got to get them uh, repaid uh, with more valuable currency than they purchased it with. Uh, but it also severely limited government's ability to to actually fulfill uh, any of the promises of reconstruction. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, it kind of parallels the Revolutionary War when the sort of provisional, uh, you know, uh, colonial government essentially issues bonds to fight, you know, the Revolutionary War. And then in the immediate years afterwards, how those bonds are going to be paid back becomes a huge issue. Of course, it gets paid back on the back of everybody else and the, you know, uh, banks and stuff get the money. But all the great fortunes are built in this moment, right? Yeah. And uh, after the Civil War, we have like a similar moment. Yeah, uh, like and war yeah. is always, <laughs> a, a, a war is always in America what we have these cycles where, where a war builds this huge, it has this capital intensifying effect. And then in the aftermath of the war, a political regime comes to power in the form of a, a transcendent military hero uh, who consecrates the entire uh, process. But in so doing, uh, sort of b- b- below everyone's uh, notice, uh, privatizes all of that capital. Uh, mm-hmm. Happened under Washington, happened with Grant, mm-hmm. uh, and then, of course, with Eisenhower after World War II. Yeah. Uh, capitalism, it works, baby. Matt, do you think things would have been different if they had a crypto algorithm to back the currency? <laughs> well, what if we funded our wars on the blockchain? <laughs> you know, there's going to be a future blockchain war. I think we all know this. But uh, <laughs> but so, look. Wait, I sorry, mean, Brian. Um, on on one one more thing on this question okay. too. I'm just kind of curious. Um, so this is when the greenbacks were issued. Like, this is the first time that I think. I, I would assume that the narrative was like we can we can only have currency that is backed by tangible assets like gold. Um, and then the government turns around and actually issues fiat currency with the greenback. Um, did that, I guess, change perspective in any way with people on like what the power of the government and the role of the government, what they can actually do? Because that seems kind of, to me, that seems kind of like a mask off moment. Uh, yeah, no, it was. And like I said, a few people did grasp the the reality of it but the overall at the at the as is usual in cases like this like with these issues i mean the the average american is is only dimly aware of them the people who are mm, very yeah. aware are are disproportionately wealthy and connected to wealth uh and they saw it as a necessary uh temporary ex- exigency uh mm. to care to to uh deal with the emergency of the rebellion that needed at the earliest possible moment to be uh ended to close off that that opening that that the, this new revolutionary relationship and that was the the uh the project of of the leadership of the republican party and that's why if it was lincoln if it was butler uh whoever it was their main the main force that they would have had to contend with uh in trying to carry out a, a more just reconstruction uh, would have been uh, their own party and, and the, the uh, new capitalists who had emerged uh, from the war uh, in disproportionate influence of it. That and, of course, the what would have been significant violent response of the mm-hmm. uh, defeated mm-hmm. southern slave owners. 
Yeah. But I mean, if you game it out in the fantasy realm after uh, huffing some uh, gasoline, like I like to do, you can imagine <laughs> a political coalition that that is able to identify those two forces as as both as enemies mm. to tie the right. one to the other and to create a new uh, populist politics in opposition to both mm-hmm. instead of what we did have, which was uh, uh, a, a Republicans uh, waving the bloody shirt against the South, the white South sort of in general and Democrats demonizing uh, the former slaves and, and the, uh, the new capitalist class sort of going uh, unnoticed as they buy out both parties and the entire structure of government. Yeah, yeah. As they ride a railroad away to heaven. But yeah, uh so you know, at this time, right, you know, Johnson he tries to build, you know, a political party around himself. He splits with the Republican Party, right? He's essentially creating all this hilarious noise in the mix that makes it a little harder for maybe some of these constituencies to come together in a way that might have been politically useful at the time. But he's also just continuing to take L's and because we can't like the the two fucking funny and me and Munya laughed about this goddamn train <laughs> tour forever. Can you explain this 1866 whistle stop tour that he takes? I mean, it's just it's too fucking funny to not bring up. Yeah. Like, so when the Republican, <laughs> when the new uh, radical Republican Congress comes in and immediately starts uh, overriding all of Johnson's vetoes and and carrying out a congressional reconstruction uh, with him sort of powerless to stop it, uh, Johnson decides that he's going to. Uh, leverage his position as president to push the American people uh, towards resistance to this uh, agenda by taking it it to the people, by taking a whistle-stop tour of uh, northern uh, cities uh, and speaking uh, to crowds to try to uh, rile them up against these miscegenators in Washington. Uh, And he was drunk most of the time. Uh, He rambled. uh, He he condemned with much more fervor than he ever had any of the confederates who started the war and killed mm-hmm. thousands of people uh the radical republicans in congress uh and meanwhile uh pro-republican crowds would heckle the shit out of him uh wherever he went uh and he would end up getting into yelling matches with with, with the crowds uh and in the days before you know any kind of presidential security and so the whole thing became a huge <laughs> debacle <laughs> Uh, yeah. At one point, at one point, um, uh, a crowd yelled. One one member of a crowd yelled at him th- that they needed to hang Jeff Davis, uh, mm. and Johnson immediately replied, "Well, why don't we just hang? Why don't we hang Thaddeus Stevens too?" Like that. That was <laughs> oh, that was Jesus. his. That's horseshoe theory. He was yeah. doing horseshoe theory. <laughs> no, like in his thought. in his mind, in 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 his mind, the radical Republicans were were as responsible for the war as as the South was. Uh, and after the war, more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the whole thing basically ends with his stage collapsing and apparently killing a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it didn't go great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like 13 people died and he just then like drove off. Oh, snap. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't write this stuff. I mean, that's just amazing. Um, hey, all publicity is good publicity, I guess. You know, you uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe it's worth noting uh, part of Johnson's problem that, you know, uh, 
a problem that wasn't that Lincoln didn't have, but Johnson did, is that he's not like a charismatic guy. Like he's not a likable figure. No, he was a uh, <laughs> a nasty drunk, basically. Yeah, yeah. Of which there are plenty at the time, but yeah, yeah holy shit. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I found this uh, hilarious to give an idea of uh, people's feelings towards Johnson at the time. I found this hilarious exchange of what I'm going to say are the two are two average Americans and uh, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, right? And so Marx is uh, following they're, all, they're both following this from England, and uh, you know May first, right after Lincoln dies, Marx writes to Engels and he says, you know, Lincoln's assassination was the most stupid act the South could have committed. Johnson is a stern, inflexible, revenge and revengeful, and as a former poor white, has a deadly hatred of the oligarchy. He will make less fuss about these fellows, and because of the treachery, he will find the temper of the North commensurate with his intentions. And then it's like you know, put the little signboard up that says "Cut to one month later." Yeah, and he's one r- month <laughs> later, and he's just writing to Ingles, uh Johnson's policy likes me not. Cut to one month later. Mr. Johnson's policy is less and less to my liking. <laughs> Cut to September. It already appears as if the victory in the field will not be accompanied by a political victory. Wah, wah. wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Too bad. So, Good game, everybody. I mean, Hit the showers. <laughs> it, it, you know, I mean, granted, this is, you know, this is somebody who's obviously very uh, invested in following this. But yeah, it, I think it kind of shows maybe what some people's opinion, like it shows kind of the arc of people's opinions on Johnson. Yeah. Be, and, uh, and, and, and he's and that is an interesting point he, because of his history as as this guy who'd been a tribune of the poor whites and had castigated the, the planter class his whole career, had been a stern military governor of Tennessee. A lot of people thought, oh, shit, he's going to go ham on these guys. But all it took were a few uh, lavender-scented words from some fancy boys <laughs> telling him that he's he was actually nice and, and tre- treating him with the respect he thought he deserved for that all to go away. Yeah. I mean, very Trumpian figure in that way. Too, oh, very much know. so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know. Everybody hates him. He's just killed a bunch of people with his, uh, you know, with a stage collapse. Uh, why can't the fucking Republican Party just get rid of this asshole? Like, it seems like all the momentum should be on their well, side. I mean, they, they tried. They did. Uh, I mean, they tried. They they went actually to pretty impressive high, uh, lengths to get rid of him because the only real mechanism they had was impeachment. And the impeachment requires a violation of the law, which as awful as Johnson's conduct was... Uh, none of it really was uh, violating the letter of the law. So they, they ginned up this uh, tenuous, uh, tenuously legal uh, pretext for impeaching him. They, they passed over his veto, a thing called the Tenure of Office Act, preventing him from removing uh, cabinet members who had been appointed by the previous president. Uh, he ignored it and fired uh, Secretary of War uh, Edwin Stanton. At one point, Stanton barricaded himself in his office and wouldn't come out. Uh, <laughs> and on this, on, for that, they were able to impeach him. And everyone sort of knew that it was a stitch-up, but it was a stitch-up necessary uh, to get him out of office. And they were able to successfully uh, impeach him in the House. But then during the Senate trial, which was a huge debacle, uh, he, uh, Johnson actually testified, uh, and, and did so, uh, uh, incoherently as you could imagine. Uh, and, <laughs> but in the end, and this is where you see the hand of, 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 of like the establishment Republican party and, and it's 
uh, rulers sort of making the final decisions, uh, Johnson was not impeached. Now, for many years, uh, the fantasy about this is that it was a a profile in courage. In fact, one of the profiles in courage in uh, JFK's uh, ghost-written book uh, is about the senator, the lone holdout Republican who didn't vote uh, to impeach uh, Johnson, uh, with the idea being that he was holding out against this politicized process. Uh, but in reality, uh, a lot of prominent Republicans did not want Benjamin Wade, the president pro tempore, who would have become president with Johnson's removal, because there was no vice president, to become president. Uh, they wanted to wait till 68 when they could put up someone of their own to uh, the office who would uh, carry forward with the conservative economic policy that they favored. And they did that in the form of the apolitical uh, Ulysses Grant. Uh, mm. And so that's why they didn't get rid of him, because the danger of unleashing a real re, a radical Republican reconstruction uh, was was too uh, was too great. Yeah. Fucking Senate. <laughs> Fucking yeah. Senate. The, the world, the greatest deliberative body. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah there's this uh you know in, in black reconstruction i mean du Bois has like a whole chapter dedicated to sort of andrew johnson and he has this this great quote which you know i think sets up this idea of the contingency that the both the opportunity and the contingency of the moment where he says uh it was the drear destiny of the poor white south that deserting its economic class in itself it became the instrument by which democracy in the nation was done to death race provincialism deified, and the world delivered to plutocracy. The man who led the way with unconscious, <laughs> unconscious paradox and contradiction was Andrew Johnson. Right? Yeah. And, and that's the thing, is that he doomed the White South that he mm -hmm. claimed to be speaking for, because there was right. no future where uh, a re-enthroned planter class was going to extend uh, a political and economic uh, power to the poor South that they hadn't before the war, their power depended on them being divided and uh, disenfranchised. Nothing changed, but uh, the war didn't change anything about that. Uh, and his re their only hope, the only hope of a politically uh, enfranchised poor white class in the South was a coalition with former slaves against the, the ruling class of the South. That was the only place mm. that there was ever going to be a, a, a chance for a, a real rise in the, in the position of the plant of the poor South instead and the poor whites instead uh, as capitalism comes to the South after the war uh, they become uh, the poor whites become a, a new proletariat to be used in uh, the new uh, industries coming there. The, the, the small amount of land that the, a lot of those poor dirt farmers have been able to hold on to over the course of the 19th century, they lost, uh, lost it and found themselves having to become laborers in industries like uh, cotton mills and such. And the whole time, the power in the states, the former Confederate states, being concentrated in the hands of the what were called bourbon Democrats, uh, who were fully beholden to uh, the ruling elites who, after the war, were a combination now of the old planters who had successfully navigated Reconstruction and uh, Northern Capital that had come in uh, and uh, bought their way into positions of power. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting. On this show, we've read, you know, excerpts from, like, travel diaries and stuff in the antebellum period, where it's Northerners or Europeans going into the American South and just being scandalized by the poverty, uh, the lack of education, the like of poor whites in the South, right? Uh, not just the slaves, but the poor whites in the South. And it's interesting that because of essentially the way that Reconstruction collapses and all that, you can also read travel diaries in the 1930s of, you know, New Deal uh, workers going into the South and being scandalized by the poverty and lack yeah. of education and things like that. So it L's all around, yeah. essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so what do you see as Johnson's, ult- I guess, you know, we've, we've been hitting around it. But what's Johnson's ultimate legacy here? Uh, worst president ever? Uh, toilet garbage man. Uh, for me, this is a no-brainer. He's the worst president of all time because he's actually consequential. The facts is fact. The very the facts are is that very few presidents are consequential. Most of the mm. time, a president is just embodying mm. a a current in history. They are there to the they are there because they have suborned themselves to the moment. They wield power, quote unquote, to the degree that they are willing to exert what the moment requires. And there's only a few presidents who, who emerge in moments of contingency who have the power to unilaterally assert their will on the world and to change the direction of history. And he is one of them. And he did it uh, for the absolute worst possible <laughs> outcome. It's just stunning. It really does feel like we are in the, the goatee mirror universe of some other better world where things like that don't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, my blood boils every time I read about Johnson, no matter how much I know about before. It's not even like it's like new information. It's just like, it just feels like this moment could have reshaped the U.S. in such a profound way that like even life as we know it right now in 2021 might be like worlds beyond different. Yeah. Um, we might not even be under this economic system. Who knows? Right. Yeah. But um, you have stated before, Matt, that you both like counterfactual history and see it more. You see it more than just like fan fiction. Right. Yeah. Um, there's like actually something real there. And so what might have reconstruction look like had Johnson not been president at that time? Like, like realistically for you, would you want reconstruction to like, um, obviously you want to look different than Johnson, but what at the time could it have been? And would it be kind of aligned with, I think what you maybe would ideally want it to be too? Well, I mean, the ideal reconstruction would have been one that overturned the racial caste system in America, created a new, like fully incorporated uh, American citizenship. Uh, and I don't think that would have happened realistically because there really were a lot of social roadblocks to that and economic ones as well. There were forces that were uh, uh, at play that, that pushed, uh, that militated against that. I mean, for one thing, to have a real push for that kind of uh, uh, reality, you would have needed some sort of fully developed working class power in this country, which had not yet emerged. So I don't think that the best case scenario, obviously, is is not one that we can realistically imagine. But I think what realistically we could think could have happened with a different president and a different response to the conditions after the war is, uh, if not complete and widespread uh, redistribution of land to former slaves, 
at least some significant seeding of uh, of land to former slaves, uh, which would have allowed for the creation of independent black political and economic power to emerge in the South. And if that happens, I think that the the it's difficult to project too far from that moment, you know, because of the butterfly effect and, and the way things would by necessity sort of fly out of our ability to, to, uh, to chart them out. But I think that, that the establishment of significant black enduring political and economic power in the South changes the uh, calculus of the uh, post-war era uh, and specifically changes the, relationship of like the American polity, American people abstractly, uh, and the emerging capital concentrations that came to dominate the government. Uh, one of the reasons that the robber barons were able to roll up uh, all of our political and economic structures after the war is was the lack of unity and coordination uh, in opposition to them. Uh, and a black political power in the South Unified as it would have been, had to have been in a coalition with uh, uh, poor whites in the South, who I think in any effective reconstruction would also have had to have had access to redistributed lands, uh, would have created a new uh, political coalition and a new uh, political force that would have been able to resist uh, the imperatives of the new robber barons in a way that was impossible. Uh, in the sort of the smashed and, and, and geographically and racially divided uh, political landscape that we ended up getting. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of sort of that vision too of creating these new constituencies, I mean, it, there's a lot of people who are very motivated at the end of the war, right, to see something different out of the country when the war is over. And as somebody who, uh, you know, fucking hates, uh, you know, somebody who had to be a political science student in college, so hates every element of the American government. I mean, I have this fantasy that uh, in, in creating these new constituencies and then acting on things they want, maybe we could do something like, I don't know, smash and then get rid of the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, get rid of the fucking Senate or just say like, hey, Constitution's stupid. Let's just write another one. <laughs> yeah. Which which does weirdly happen in these moments, but not for America, apparently. Yeah, I mean, that that to me is the real the, the real signal failure of Reconstruction like, at a structural level is that it left the Constitution intact. All we got out of it was the were the Reconstruction Amendments, which were important and powerful, but which largely by the end of the war become, or by the end of the century uh, are tools to protect corporate power. That And that was all that was all structured by the failure to fundamentally alter the structures of government that that reproduce themselves so yeah i think that like i said uh independent black political power in the south would have changed the uh changed the calculus of of political conflict and i think would have led to a significant crisis uh over the constitution and and you know ideally the end of it and the replacement with something better Okay, well, that was um, phenomenal and really insightful interview, Matt. Uh, really, really appreciate having you on um, and you coming on to this, our small uh, little <laughs> podcast that we're doing on End of Myth. And um, and uh, do you have anything you want to plug at all? I, yeah, not. I mean, yeah, you guys talked about Hella Presidents, Chapo. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, 
what more do you need right yeah 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 man yeah do check out hello presidents it's on stitcher um really really great well produced uh chris wade is also the co-host so um you know if you want to learn about presidents and not like be completely bored and just like want to feel like you're going back to third grade history class like i think that this is a good place uh to start and it's um really really enjoyable so yeah um check that out thank you thank you matt so wanted to close uh, with an excerpt from W.B. Du Bois from Black Reconstruction. Uh, in that book, he dedicated a whole chapter to Andrew Johnson. Uh, and here were his final thoughts on the man. The transubstantiation of Andrew Johnson was complete. He had begun as the champion of the poor laborer. But in the end, because he could not conceive of Negroes as men, he refused to advocate universal democracy of which in his young manhood he had been the fiercest advocate and made strong alliance with those who would restore slavery under another name. This change did not come by deliberate thought or conscious desire to hurt. It was rather the tragedy of American prejudice made flesh, so that the man born to narrow circumstances, a rebel against economic privilege, died with the conventional ambition of a poor white to be the associate and benefactor of monopolists, planters, and slave drivers. In some respect, Andrew Johnson is the most pitiful figure of American history, a man who, despite great power and great ideas, became a puppet, played upon by mighty fingers and selfish, subtle minds, groping, self-made, unlettered, and alone, drunk, not so much with liquor, but as with the heady wine, of sudden and accidental success. Rest in piss, Andrew Johnson. <laughs> Hell yeah. The man can write. Oh my God, beautiful. So join us next week as we're joined by another very special guest who is an expert on westward expansion, reconstruction, and the Gilded Age. This is a person who has directly inspired both of us to create Ending the Myth. And we are big fans of his work and of his big book that we cite heavily throughout this series. We are super, super lucky to have him on. So look forward to that and much more next week. The money's not the deal, the cow's not the deal. It's freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive government. It's free real estate.
Rivera dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de Stay, stay, stay.